0: Welcome to this episode of the World Extreme Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Will Duffin, GP and Medical Director, and co-hosting today is Mark Hannaford, WEM founder and CEO. This is the podcast for people with adventurous and curious minds. The practice of extreme medicine is deeply connected with travel to parts of the world that endure famine, conflict, political instability, and crushing inequality, So on this podcast, we're always keen to speak to professionals who can share their insights and perspectives on this. And today's guest is world-renowned photojournalist Nick Danziger, who spent his career telling the unique human stories of disadvantaged and oppressed peoples from across the globe. Many people will perhaps recognize his work already from photos such as the iconic black and white image of Bush and Blair, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But Mark, could you perhaps shed some light on today's guest? Who is Nick Danziger?
1: Well, Nick is a, a chap I've been trying to meet for almost uh, 25, 30 years, and he's quite elusive. He's quite private, I think. I think that's probably the thing. Um, I first came across Nick's writings when I was first beginning my own um, expeditionary career going off to Patagonia, and I came across um, Danziger's Travels, first his first book, and then I've actually still got my my copy from my travelling days um, of Danziger's Adventures with a rather useful picture of... of of uh, Nick on the front cover there. But this is my original book from, well, for, from from quite a few years ago. So, you know, some of Nick's journeys in that period were, were completely iconic. And whilst I was certainly headed in the expeditionary direction anyway, reading his books reaffirmed that desire to 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 explore, to go and see some of the, the world's more remote, remote and sort of um, exotic, I think exotic's the wrong word, but real corners um so his writings for me have been inspirational and helped to shape the direction of my my own career so Nick it's a it's a real pleasure to have eventually tracked you down and for you to be joining us today
2: well I must say that I'm I'm I was obviously surprised but um when I thought about it maybe it is a good marriage to be on your podcast
1: and I think this might be the longest stalk in history. That is almost 27 years, I think. <laughs>
2: uh, and that's say- that's
0: saying something. Believe me, Nick, Mark is a world-class stalker of, of uh, I'm going to take that the right people. way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and th- with this episode, we're going to be looking in quite detail at Nick's new book, which I'm holding up to the camera. This is Another Life. It's a crowdfunded book of photos of, uh from across the globe from places f- from niger to zambia um uh looking at the human impact of poverty and conflict and uh, you know real expose of how successful we've been at meeting the millennium development goals you know where you know where the gaps are in the, in the kind of political global system that that has somehow led to this uh huge levels of, of inequality it's uh, both mark and i've got a copy it's uh it's quite a a powerful book quite a difficult book to to read through the images are really quite raw aren't they mark
1: they're incredibly raw and the fact that they're all black and white i think makes them even even starker and more um more impactful
0: uh, what led to you uh what was your kind of thinking
2: behind this book uh, nick well- Originally, came out of a commission to see how the Millennium Development Goals were faring. And um, so I traveled to eight different countries on four continents so that, as it were, I wasn't going to stigmatize individual uh, countries. And what I discovered was that amongst those eight Millennium Development Goals, often someone living in extreme poverty would be affected by several of them. The initial brief, actually, was to go to one country and focus on one MDG. Um, So the project was carried out. I think they were happy with the results. And I thought, well, if you really want to know how these goals are faring, I need to go back or we need to go back and find the same people all over again to create some kind of measurement to see if there was an improvement in their lives. So five years later, I decided to try and retrace everyone, revisit them. Um, The commission uh, no longer existed, they weren't interested, but I found funding through foundations, it's often the case now, and uh, after that, five years later, I decided to go back a third time. So every person in that book has been visited at least three times, sometimes up to six times, to see whether those goals were indeed effective or not. And that's what I really like about, I think, the way that I work, I think, is is to go back and just not leave the story behind. I've been visiting Afghanistan now for, I think it's 35 years, uh, going back off and revisiting the same families and, and individuals, and I, I hope that gives me a better perspective on whether people's lives are changing for the better or not.
1: And, and Nick, one of your on d'etre as a photographer is to give the, the unheard a voice. And do you think that as um, with the Millennium Goals, as societies develop, those, those voices are being heard any more clearly than they were before?
2: I, I have to say, uh, no, uh, their voices aren't. When I say their voices aren't strong enough, we're not hearing enough about how what I would describe as the majority world are living. I think it's one of the sad things we say, oh, we're so amazingly well connected today through the internet. We know what's going on. But I often give talks at schools from primary, secondary, high school level, and also to universities. And my impression is that young people certainly know less and less about what is happening in the world. And I think that's very frustrating because the gaps to me seem to be getting bigger and bigger. They're widening. People today are living uh, in conditions that haven't improved since the medieval ages without electricity, running water. Forget about access to, to health care. Um, that's that's a pipe dream for them.
0: So for those of you who aren't familiar with the Millennium Development Goals, that was uh, that was a, a, um, uh, a mandate uh, um, agreed in the year 2000 by UN member states on eight goals to uh, er- eradicate extreme poverty and hunger uh, to tackle gender inequality reduce child mortality combat infectious diseases There's was eight goals and we've got to 2015 and well the jury's out really on how successful that was and that's subsequently been replaced by the s sustainable development goals and there's now 17 of them and the the has been shifted back to 2030 so there's lots been going on this in this arena and Nick you've you know you, you've been intimately involved with with these these um, with these goals and what they mean f- to the people on uh, on the ground who are affected by these issues. How successful do you think these kind of political drive and, and initiatives have, have been in addressing some of these, these areas of huge need?
2: Uh, you know, I think that there, had, there was a willingness, certainly in the beginning, everyone, all the, the member states of the United Nations signed up to the Millennium Development Goals. Um, I think there was a political will, but the reality is, is quite different on the ground. And I think that we're driven by kind of uh, all these different sort of metrics, you know, the, the numbers. So, you know, visiting schools and not just on this project, but I go to schools in the global south, and there are 150 children in the classroom. And if you look at those targets, MDG 2, Universal Primary Education, you look at them and many countries say that, yes, every child is now in school, but you go to those schools and in a class of 130 or 140, or indeed, as I mentioned, 150, half the children don't have notebooks or pens, forget about shoes. So what is the quality of the teaching? How do you teach one teacher to 150 children? But if you yeah. look at the figures, you know that, that, that country has done extremely well. One of the, I was very surprised in Latin America on that particular project. I actually met the minister for development and she was honest enough, I said, it's extraordinary. You're the only country I've come across where that figure of of children attending universal primary uh, attendance at school has gone down. I said, how's that possible? And she said, well, we incentivized teachers and schools to get children into the classroom. And what happened, this resulted in producing ghost children They didn't actually exist. So, you know, what I would say very strongly is that there is a huge amount of work still to be done. And and we're speaking almost in, it's a pandemic. Extreme poverty is something that exists throughout the world. We have poverty in our own societies, maybe not extreme poverty, but what I see in many countries in the global south. But I think it mirrors a lot of what is taking place today in the vaccination program is that we're looking after ourselves first and ignoring uh, the majority world. And that cannot be good for the health of our future, certainly for our children and our grandchildren. They will live in a society where we will see these pressures as they already exist. We talk about migration, uh, people moving and wanting to move to Europe and, and North America. but the biggest migrations that I have witnessed today, and indeed people in in the book that you mentioned, um, they are not moving to the west or to the north, they're moving to the cities. People are deserting rural areas where life is simply so difficult and hard. And this
0: is one of the big themes that comes through in your work for me, Nick, is this sense of us being that that shared human condition, the interconnectedness of it all. And uh, you know, it's it's also struck me at just how shielded we are in the in, in the Western world. You know, uh, you know this realization that we living in the UK and in in Western Europe, we are the global elite, you know, and we we just don't in day to day life have any sense of what is going on in in some of these places. Which is why your work is this unique window into those into those places and for me the the uh, low income low resource countries that i've traveled to have given me the biggest perspective the biggest wake-up call on just how lucky we are when you see that juxtaposition between you know the crushing poverty of kids running around in the street with no shoes on and you know uh, families living living hand to mouth in in uh, you know tiny little brick buildings where they're, they're cooking indoors and it's all just this big uh, this big melange of, of, uh, of bodies and, and smoke and, uh, you know, kids who are being forced into, into work just to, just to make ends meet. Uh, and you, you juxtapose that with you know us, uh, certainly Mark will relate to this, you know, in the, in the commercial, uh, expedition world, we you know, we turn up with all our Gucci kit and our, um, and we're ready to climb some mountains and maybe have some fun and, and, you know we're there for the, for the clients. But when you put those two together, it really brings it into focus. Is that something you've, you can relate to Mark?
1: yeah i think it is it's it's that sort of almost and it was almost a question for nick as well it's that kind of guilt that you've got a british passport you go to these places or a european passport you go to these places and there, there, there is a benefit of course because you're employing people you're providing income uh and providing activity but on, this, on the same sort of flip side of that coin you're you know you're getting them them to carry heavy weights you're um it's just that sort of polarity between the rich and the poor and it almost makes you feel guilty to have a British passport that that you can come home but one thing always strikes me um, when traveling is the hospitality and actually the deep joy that a lot of people have in in life and maybe because it's it's just a lot harder and actually scarcer
2: yeah I mean if I could could answer that because again if I go back to giving talks in schools and universities I mean people say you know, uh, how often have you been close to death uh, going into conflict zones? And I never answer that because what you've just said is is the difference between uh, me and them. They, I can leave whenever I want. I usually have a return ticket. Um, they, they can't leave their countries. Again, going back to uh, m- migration and, and people fleeing their country, the vast majority don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the money to leave their countries. The majority of people are displaced in conflict within their own countries. It's an embarrassment to me, even the way that I'm dressed, the shoes that I wear when I when I go. I mean, I, I, I do occasionally to reach remote areas. Um, you could call it the classic expedition, but I remember once going to the Pamirs in Afghanistan. And um, I wouldn't say that I was over equipped uh, because of that, that embarrassment, but we were up every morning at 4 a.m. before first light because uh, the people who were with us, our guides, couldn't bear to sleep on the ground any longer. It was so cold, they wanted to keep moving. Um, I had a decent pair of shoes, they didn't. Um, you know, when we, we crossed the snowfield, some of them didn't have socks. That's tragic. I mean, I think there's a, there's always a goal in what I'm doing, but I you know I, I remember that now because I still feel guilty about it. I feel guilty that you know we can come with all the 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 the, the insurances as it were that they will never have in their lifetime. When I say insurances, analgesics, and you know I'm, I, I I'm working on a, a global project about uh, hard drugs, and I see people. Resorting to using opium because, in fact, it's cheaper than than buying an analgesic. I mean, you know, where is the sanity in the world that we're living today? Does um, I mean, often as a
1: photographer, and as you said, you can you've got a passport, you can always generally come home. There's um, a degree of voyeurism in terms of taking photography. How do you balance that uh, sense of, you know, intruding and uh, collecting images? but then being able to to leave and come home with the need to tell that story?
2: Well, I think, you know, I mean, I I started as a painter. Um, I never expected to end up as a photojournalist or write books or make documentary films. And I think I'm driven by what you both said originally, which is to give a voice to others. And so I go with a professional outlook. In other words, I'm there and I do have a job. I have a job to represent the people in the way that I hope that they they want to be represented I I don't arrive with the cameras open ready to shoot I work with people on the ground who are from these communities it's explained why I'm there Um, I spend quite a lot of time explaining not why I'm just there but the result is that it's unlikely that unfortunately their condition is unlikely to change as a result of their stories or their voice being heard so I think that's very, very important is the approach that I take, the time that I spend, the relationships that I build up. And again, I want to really stress that my work is teamwork. I get access to the places that I go to thanks to uh, people on the ground who are part of that team, who in a sense vouch for me, who maybe have had access to my work and then can explain what it is that I'm trying to do. Nick, I think, looking at your photos, you know they're they're
0: all wide angle lenses you're very intimate very close to your subjects they're all black and white there's no telephoto lenses in there and uh, you know one thing i found uh, you know when i've tried to take photos of human subjects overseas you know when i'm you know i'm the only perhaps the only person with white skin in 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 that environment is it's very easy for it to become quite intrusive and quite voyeuristic um yeah it's just remarkable how you know how do you you talked about working close with people, but how do you really avoid taking a camera into these places where people are really struggling and not making them feel exploited, making them feel like they're somehow specimens in a zoo?
2: Well, I think, you know, it comes back to what I just said in a sense mm. that so much is about building up those relationships, explaining yeah. why I'm there. and And one of the reasons that I. I do go back is not just to see whether things have improved in their life or not, but I, I really enjoy, I, to say love might sound patronizing, but the people I work with, and you build up these relationships. And I think it's like, uh, you know, if, if you enter someone's home, they're not gonna reveal themselves in the first uh, meeting. And then bit by bit, you get to know them. And bit by bit, you become part of the scenery. And I think it is important to, to realize—not uh, everyone will realize like you have—that they are all these images are taken on wide-angle lens. It's either from twenty-four to thirty-five millimeter. So I'm extraordinarily close. You mentioned the Bush and Blair uh, uh, image. It's the same. I'm literally on Bush's shoulder as I was taking that picture of of Tony Blair. The same with heads of state. That's the way that I work: is in close proximity, but also as it were, fly on the wall, that it's observational, that I disappear, that I, I'm not part of the action.
1: Well, is that entirely true, Nick? Because uh, there have been occasions when you've crossed that line because you're the, the father to free Afghani. I could see your eyes wondering where this story was going to go. <laughs> is it going to be some big reveal? But your, um, your free children are Afghani af- uh,
2: ref- ref- orphans. Originally, I mean, it's a, it's a long and complicated story, but I mean, and I don't like sort of referring it back to myself. But I mean, sometimes, you know, I'm often asked, you know, well, what do you do in these situations? And, and I had built up a relationship with a group of, of children. I'd established an orphanage. And, and when the Taliban took power in, in Afghanistan in 1996, there were three left. And basically, I could no longer leave them behind, knowing what was in particular going to happen to the girl, two girls who were sisters and um decided yes that i i had to adopt them there wasn't any kind of decision um of do i don't i there was a very tiny window of opportunity and i felt that um i couldn't leave them behind and i think that sort of goes back to that question or the question actually that will and i were
1: discussing before we came online is you know how how difficult is it not to intervene um, obviously, you did in Afghanistan, uh, but it, uh, it, does that
2: leave you with a moral moral dilemma at times? It, it obviously does. You visit you know, famine. Um, I, 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 I mean, often you find yourself confronted. I mean, there are two things I'd like to say. I mean, you go to a famine uh, zone and people are dying in front of you. What do you do? But the scale of it is usually enormous. One individual. And then you get criticized for taking these images. Well, you know, are we to know about those that are less fortunate? Are, does it make our own lives uncomfortable? I get at, why are we criticizing the photographer? We should be criticizing society. We produce, the world produces enough food to feed everyone on this planet. I'm told that, or I've read that, you know, we we throw away or a, a third of the, the food that is produced on this planet is wasted. Why are we attacking the photographer for, for bringing images out of of what is taking place and i remember in in one situation where the women were semi naked and and my my as it were interlocutor was, was was there and i said could you ask the women to raise their dresses and and she went over to them and they said either he takes the picture as we are or he doesn't take the picture so you know I, it, it's it's very upsetting it's upsetting you know we we can see the media today what they want is celebrity photography they want um the kind of happy instagram social media type images not not what is really happening out in the world today
0: yes i i completely agree perhaps we live increasingly in a world that is is, it's photoshopped it's uh it's filtered uh and it's um it, it, we've lost that authenticity in, in the images that we're exposed to through social media. so it's very refreshing Nick to see something which really you know, really gets under the skin and really tells the, the real story. And it'd be, I'd, I'd be interested to hear just some of, a few of your perspectives on uh, the sequence of images in, in your book. And one that really struck Mark and I was the, um, uh, the, the section on Niger, the Miners in Niger and this is uh, often children as young, uh, very young children being going down into very uh, primitive, basic, dangerous mine shafts. and, and, and this is very topical. You know, every day there's some kind of news item on uh, people in some part of the world getting lost underground in some mine. China was the most recent example of that. but you know, th- this is incredibly dangerous work and um, yeah t- well, tell us what it was like working
2: w- with that with that community. Well, th- to start with, as you mentioned, I mean the, the f- their children. And they start going down the mine from the ages of 11 to 13. Uh, I followed an individual. I followed Abbas. He was 13 when he first started going down the mine. There are no safety devices. Those mines are usually between 23 and 40 meters deep. And the way that they descend and climb in and out of the mine, it, are just sort of like holes, divots, in the side of the, the wall, the mine shaft. And so they put their hands and their feet in, to, to as it were, sort of, Cool down and up, and um, they get to the bottom. I did go down. They were panicked, but they attached um, sort of rubber ropes to me just in case that I slipped. I I should mention that Abbas's boss um, uh, lost his footing and and plunged to his death a year before I took the picture of Abbas. But when you get to the bottom, you have to be on all fours to 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 get into these galleries where they're hewing, you know, they're they're hacking at the rock face to find a kind of streams, veins of gold. There are no struts or beams. So during the rainy season, these mines often collapse. Every single day I was there, there were injuries and indeed a death. And there, when I first went in 2005, there, were, there, w- there wasn't even a clinic. There was no hospital, no clinics. So when we hear about these mine accidents, yes, those are in countries where there's uh, news outlets and where we want to hear. These are illegal uh, mines. I mean, there are licenses that you purchase, but it's what I would call artisanal mining. And indeed, you know, as time has progressed, and I followed uh, Abbas's, as it were, Uh, uh, life. I've now known him for 15 years. I mean, now these extremist groups that are operating in that area are also taxing um, the people that are making money from the mines. So, um, you know, our our desire for these minerals also fuels uh, the conflicts and what we would term terrorist groups that are subsequently attacking, as it were, our interests. But to come back on the human scale um you know the, the children you know they know now uh, 10 years after i started shooting there they were you know there were signs up from the united nations saying you know it's illegal for children to work and i'd go up to the children and i'd say well how old are you and they'd all say you know 18 and i'd say well how long have you been working in the mine and you know the kid would look 13 or 14 two three years so they hadn't quite learned the whole talk and then another part of uh, your book, and this, is,
0: this uh, image features on the, the cover of Another Life, is the, uh, the sex workers in rural Zambia working on the Harare-Lusaka Highway. And, and that's equally as, as powerful, Nick. They, they've got girls, there, images of girls as young as 11 who are having to sell their bodies to, to board truck drivers along the route. And some of them are so poor that they're, they're renting their clothes and makeup from other women who are paid a percentage of their earnings. I mean, that must have been incredibly difficult um, uh, place well, it, to, to, be, to be working. But
2: I think, you know, yeah. again, what's really important about this story is that, uh, again, the young woman that I followed for, for 10 years, she initially started uh, as a sex worker because she needed the money to buy pens and paper to stay at school. She wanted an education. Her mother couldn't provide for her. And she understood how some of the girls in her class were managing, as it were, to stay in school. So again, I mean, this is outrageous. And she knew the dangers of HIV AIDS. And on my second visit, she had become HIV positive. Indeed, the girl on the cover of the book is no longer alive. And I think that is the tragedy. And when, when I naively said, well, you knew the dangers, uh, when I spoke to Irene and her best friend, Bridget, they said, yeah, but we, we have no, no power. These are grown men who often, um, you know, they will tell us what happens. We're not in a position uh, to, to say to them, you know, I refuse to have sex unless it's, you know, protected sex. Yeah, I mean, these are incredibly vulnerable people, aren't they? Um, and the uh, dilemma is if we yeah. think about extreme poverty because yeah. HIV, you know, communicable diseases was one of those goals. I mean, mm-hmm. some areas you can get um, ART, antiretroviral mm-hmm. treatment, but I'm meeting people who, um, and I'm, I mention this because of, of all of you being in the medical uh, mm-hmm. sector, is that, you know, they, they don't have uh, regular meals. They don't have clean water. And I've, I've met a father who said, know do I feed myself to prolong my life or do I feed my children?
0: Yeah god I mean what an awful dilemma to have to make and what struck me Nick about the the way that we've the rapidity with which we've developed Covid vaccines and how we've been able to roll that out it makes me wonder would it have been possible to uh, eliminate or even eradicate HIV Across the globe, you know, is it just? Is it actually just because the political will isn't there? Because it doesn't really directly affect the you know, the, the 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 westernized countries of the world where big pharma and all the money and influence is is concentrated. What,
2: what do you What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, this. I'm I'm a non medical person, and you know, I I mean, I have read about, for example, the history of polio, and if you read about the history of polio, it was costing the United States of America such a huge sum of money in in terms of lost production, etc., that vast sums of money were plowed into finding a polio vaccine. And we see this again, indeed, with the the COVID-19 pandemic, that it has ravaged uh, the economies of the high income countries. And I, I don't know if the figure is the same today, but uh, the UK is doing very well, Israel, etc. Uh, I think you know, a month after the vaccine was first out, only 25 vaccinations have taken place in low income countries. Yeah. That's an outrage.
0: Yeah. It's shocking, isn't it? And uh, in the UK, we, we there's lots of criticism leveled at the government for our response to the pandemic. One thing we've done very well at is stockpiling vaccine. And there's this huge issue isn't there Nick at the moment with vaccine nationalism um, with a lot of vaccine being distributed only in the the global north. And I think that that, there's movements, um, organizations like COVAX who are trying to redress that balance and and ensure an equitable distribution of vaccine across the globe. But uh, it remains to be seen whether that, how effective that those initiatives are going to be, doesn't it?
2: But you see, I think it comes back to, you know, why should extreme poverty in some of the countries that you and I travel to matter to us? But it's like COVID-19. Mutations will develop. If we don't do this globally, then the mutation will happen to such a degree that we will need a new vaccine. We need to distribute equally across the globe to the most vulnerable in order to prevent a return with another pandemic of a of a mutation if that makes sense from a non-medical person whatever whatever you know it, it, you know what you throw out there comes back to you yeah and and when we talk about these minors you know i meet families where both in the middle east and in in the sahel where mothers are saying to me you know i'm trying to stop my son going off with these armed groups, whether it's the army, the militia, or as we know, you know, the, the, the Islamic uh, state has uh, various groups out there. They will go with someone, not even for money. If they are told they will have a regular meal, I don't think I can hold my children back. It's their stomachs. And, you know, there is this bitterness and anger and and, we are partially responsible for that. Where do we, all the extractive industries? The majority of what is extracted goes to maintaining our consumer society in the high-income countries.
0: And the, the, those miners in in Niger that we talked about, those precious minerals, they all end up in our iPhones and and uh, and, and things, don't they? The, the, luxury the example goods that of that, no
2: one has seen. Take- yeah, no one has uh, an iPhone there, and no one has uh, ever seen. Well, the young people, anyway, the, the young miners, because I have asked them, they've never seen a gold ring or bracelet. They don't know why we value gold. I think that that's what's interesting. That and this is
0: another thing that comes through in in your work, Nick, is this sense of intercon- interconnectedness and, and this idea of it being another life. This being this this very removed. Otherworldly um, uh, kind of experience of traveling in, in the global south and, and meeting those peoples, but what it comes, what, what, what you're saying is that all comes back to us. We are all one, um, you know, one human race, and issues like inequitable in vaccine distribution of food, um, uh, food insecurity, of climate change, of conflict ultimately that will all affect all of us we, we we cannot live as islands and i think in the kind of political arena you, you might argue there's been an increasing move towards a nationalist populist style of politics where it's you know america first or, or uk first and, and we're perhaps pulling up our drawbridges we're, we're uh we're perhaps you know we, we're, we've reduced if anything uk we've, we've massively reducing our global aid budget and I, I just, it really worries me because I, I know, I strongly believe as you do Nick, that the only way we can, as a, as a human race, we can face up to the problems that we're, we're faced with is if we work together.
2: But everything is teamwork mm. and, 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 and you know that, I mean, there has to be a fairer, more equitable distribution of the world's resources. We consume a hundred times more energy than 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 those people in in those mining villages or on the border between you know down in Zambia. Uh, this is it, this will come back to haunt us. And, and and Nick,
0: so I mean, looking at your book, it, it is I mean. Th- there is misery in there, albeit the photos themselves are beautiful, but the, the subjects are clearly ab- in abject
2: misery. Out of all of this, are there any rays of hope? Yeah, I mean, there are positive stories there. I mean, one of the really positive stories, and I think it's indicative of, of the way we need to move forward, is um, transgender rights in, in India. It was the first state to recognise uh, the issue of transgender identity and the transgender community has been transformed for the better as a result of, uh, first of all, state policies. So, you know, governments really do need to be leaders and take the initiatives. I think, yes, us as individuals can become a kind of whole cohort to move policy forward, but ultimately it is government policy that will make a difference for those people living in the margins. And indeed, I think, you know, people often say, oh, people are not ready for democracy. I mean, that's total and utter bullshit. Condoleezza Rice said, well, that's what they were telling our community, the black community in the United States in the 60s. And when I go to countries in the Middle East and in the Sahel where, you know, there is no longer or has never been a democracy, That's what the young people want. But it's not the voice for a president. It's so that they can participate in municipal elections so that they can have clean running water so that they can have access to a medical health center. They don't care about the president in some distant city in their own country. They want grassroots democracy sorry
1: my, that. <laughs> <laughs> my signal dropped out for a little bit so i'm not sure where uh, what questions was asked and stuff but um one of the the key point, turning points from you that turned your path from being an artist in a sculpture into having the passion that you had that you've just spoken with was the winston churchill trust uh foundation or fellowship how does how, how did that work how did that change the very course of your life
2: well, I should mention that the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust, soon to be known as, I think, the the Churchill uh, Trust, they often, I mean, they give many, many fellowships to people in the medical profession, nurses for looking after the terminal ill, et cetera. Um, it changed my life, really, as a result of the journey that I came about, which I then ended up um, as a book. So really, I think that, um, had I not had that fellowship, I'd probably still be a painter. I think it was the call to go back to many of the countries that I had visited. And I think that, that is the, the, the key element of, of why I continue to do what I do today is because I know what is out there and any opportunity that I have to give a voice to others, which is, in a sense, what that Churchill Fellowship allowed me to do, is to be able to go and do that. So whether it's with substance abusers, people living in conflict, um, women who bear the brunt of the effects of war and conflict, um, that's where I want to be. And I, and I, it is a two-way street. Uh, I mean, we talk about the difficulties and the horrors, but you mentioned about values, and I, and to come back to the famine, and I mentioned about these uh, women, semi-naked, dying. My age to, to pick up your camera and to look in front of you and see someone your age dying because, not because there wasn't food in the country, the vast majority of areas that I have visited where famine and people are dying, it is because they do not have the money to buy the food that exists in their own marketplaces. And I remember in one of these villages, And I show this picture to children in particular of a woman brewing tea surrounded by family and men. And I say to the children, there's no food. There's almost no water. Who is she brewing that tea for? And they say, the children. And I say, no. They say, for the family, I say, no. And because we still live in a predominantly patriarchal society for the men, I say, no. She made that tea for me. And it's unbearable almost to think about it because you know do you drink that cup of tea or not? I mean, you don't want to drink it, but you know that would be insulting to them not to drink the tea and And I think it, it all comes back to that that we we have lost those values. We tend to keep myself included, save, put aside. So many of the people I visit, they don't have a single penny, centime, in their pocket. There is nothing on their shelves. Hand to mouth, there's no, there's nothing in between. Uh, Nick, can we talk for a moment just about
0: the way that you've travelled? Because it's, it's, you know, some people might perceive you as a you know, successful photojournalist, you've got lots of published books. You're living in the south of France. That you know, perhaps you're staying in five-star hotels and things. But that's not been the case. And actually, the accounts of your travels that I've I've read, you know, are ones where you've really assimilated, really integrated with with those people. You've lived alongside them. You've um uh, learned um and uh, 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 some of the language and some of the culture. You know. What role specifically has has that had in in, or well, how have you been able to really gain the trust and really get under the skin in these in these communities, rather than just being this another camera-toting tourist? Yeah, well, I, I
2: think you know one of the things to start with is probably the five-star hotels. I mean, I will sleep on the floor next to them, um, if permitted. Um, I will eat and share their food, even if I know it hasn't been, you know, correctly washed um you know i um the five-star hotels when i do my behind the scenes political coverage and you're traveling with a head of state which is so far removed all the gatekeepers they have less and less idea of what the world is about and so therefore i think that i probably am a chameleon i try and integrate myself as best as i can with those communities be they heads of state be they Uh, nomads be they uh, uh, women living uh, on the front line, because they don't have the money to to pick up sticks and move to a safer location. So I think uh, I want to share what they share. Going down the mine, everyone said don't go down the mine, it's too dangerous. Those are the miners there. But how could I photograph Abbas, spend three days with him and not go down the mine and photograph what he risks on a daily basis abbas works 7 days a week 9 hours a day sometimes overtime he has 2 days off a year he eats meat twice a year on those days off that's really so shocking, i think that's you know that that's yeah. the point is if i go to these places it's to share their vicissitudes their hardships uh, to you know in a sense, I, I'm their guest. I'm their uninvited guest. Yes, yeah. Yes. Um, I think it's, that that's the point. There's almost some parallels between
0: the way that you work and perhaps an undercover police officer. And I know you're not the law. You know, <laughs> you're just your observer. In, in our difficult
2: <laughs> neighborhoods, that's what they worry about. They see go yeah. up and they say, but, "Yeah."
0: But that kind of that way of working isn't free from risk to you. And I wondered how, whether you'd been any during the course of your travels if whether you'd been in any. Uh, very uh, tense or challenging circumstances where you felt that your personal safety or security was compromised and and how you how you manage that
2: often but I mean I I work through people who um, hopefully know who I am so the trust is already there and then they try and convey that uh, sense of you know, that that I can be trusted. So it includes our own neighborhoods in, in the UK, in France, and in other high-income countries. I have the same difficulty if I go into a difficult neighborhood. I worked in the Troubles in Northern Ireland with the Catholic community, with the Protestant community, and, and indeed, I also ended up there with a platoon uh, sharing, I think it was 10 days living in the barracks with the platoon, going out on patrol and and worrying that I'd be recognised by some of the communities I'd already visited, and I think you know that that's the really important point is to 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 be able to work in the way that I work is you have to you know forget about you know a lot of who you are in terms of I want to go with an empty page and have the people um, teach me. I learn. I mean, that's what I love. What I do is because every day. I learn so much, and it's an amazing, uh, what can I say, key door into other people's lives. And I try and respect that as much as possible. Some of the images, obviously, how can you keep someone's dignity when they're emaciated or when they're injured? And, and I think to come back to your point, I mean, for me, it's, it's not so much being a photographer. I say to people, don't study photography. Study medicine, languages sociology because I think all of those things including being a detective is what you need to bring uh, to this type of work and I'm only there thanks to people agreeing to opening their door so the door can shut just as quickly.
1: I think that doorway analogy Nick is a really powerful one because you clearly went through a doorway when you applied for your fellowship and that's led to the life that you're leading now and and the uh, the powerful message and voice you're giving to the unheard do you is there a sense um that uh and I know that you started off as an artist as a painter that you will eventually take, start taking your easel and brushes to some of these places and and actually painting them because <laughs> I know that, that creative urge it does photography fully fulfill your creative urge or was the, no, the, the, it, the, the
2: it doesn't I mean I I uh, and the other day Someone uh, got in touch with me through Google Mail because they had bought a work of mine, a painting at auction um, in the UK and, and wanted to know more about the painting. I mean, it was mainly abstract, but based on mathematics. But anyway, um, it doesn't fully fulfill me. But I'm at the moment, I'm still, as long as I can manage to get to these places, I'm still driven. I, I worry about my friends, for example, in Myanmar, which I visit. Almost, yeah, every year, right, so yeah, every year for the past 10 years, I think I've been going to Myanmar at least once a year, and, and they've been able through VPN. So I, I run a charity, and we're currently distributing free VPNs to our former participants in the workshops that I run, and, and consequently been receiving images and videos and, and messages uh, from them. So at the, the point
0: this is being recorded, there's just been a military coup in Myanmar, the Aung San Suu Kyi is under... Uh, she's being detained again, and the, and the military are back in, in command. What What's your take at this stage, on with, with your knowledge of Myanmar, Nick, on you know what direction that country is heading in?
2: I think it's difficult to know what direction. I mean, you know, the military are capable, and I think it all comes down to economics again, you know. Um, Myanmar, like much of Southeast Asia, and indeed much of the world, is, is now uh, in the economic grips of China, and China will have a massive say as to what does and doesn't take place uh, in Myanmar. And um, I think, it, obviously, the vast majority of people want democracy, whether it's in Myanmar or elsewhere. They have tasted uh, people have, have, have lived through uh, military dictatorship in yeah. Myanmar. I visit North Korea as well. Mm. Um, I visited Myanmar when it was under the dictatorship. So mm. there is this yearning now uh, to, to uh, have uh, the democratically elected government returned. It just, I mean,
0: even during that period where there was a civilian government in Myanmar, I think that the military they they retained some power. They never truly let go. Absolutely, did they? no, no, no. They, and, they,
2: yeah. I mean, you know, the, they uh, they were there. Mm. And I think you know the situation with the Rohingya minority in Rakhine State, very uh, delicate issue for Aung San Suu Kyi because she is very aware that the military, as we have seen. Uh, nonetheless uh, had the controls. But again, if we're talking about minorities, the world focused on the Rohingya. Uh, I've run workshops in Kachin State, in Shan State two years ago, um, with the Karen and the Mon minorities. They're also all suffering terribly um, as a result of majority rule in their nation. And that's the tragedy for me, is there are so many untold stories. And we in our high income countries tend to put the focus in one area for a period of time. We then get bored of it. We move on to the next uh, area, having uh, left an area that still nothing has been resolved for the majority of the people that we had once focused on. And it's very hard for these people to have a voice.
0: You talked about VPNs there. I mean, there's been lots of state run propaganda in Myanmar uh, and in, in you know, other parts of the world you know, that, that these voices are oppressed, you know, and that's part of the uh, a political regime. And I think, would you say that photography was a, a way of giving these people some some kind of platform, of, of giving them some kind of recognition?
2: You know, the visual today, so much um, is, uh, is told through visual imagery, people respond, to both the stills and the moving f- footage. It really uh, has a power over the way that people look at the world today. I think in my own personal work, and sorry to bring it back to me, but I think that there is a, a, um, a very important part for words to, uh, to play with the images. The images can't tell the whole story. And I would like to read because it was we're now talking about me and my, I've just brought up on my email. This is from actually someone who was a partner in one of the workshops. So she she just emailed me. Um, we feel so numb with disbelief and anger. It is so unjust and disgusting. Another nightmare has begun and we are all forced to live under oppression, fear and abuse of mind and rights as humans. I don't know how long I can go on mom is very upset she does not even want to eat she's 90 and my prayers for peaceful days in her twilight years are not answered Mintin, Mintin is one of the facilitators in our workshop has been arrested again not sure if he will ever be released i try not to be broken i am literally choked with anger and hatred and i've been on the internet for an hour this morning with whatsapp and receiving images, it's it's heartbreaking for people uh, to to face, uh, yet again, uh, military dictatorship. And it's hard for us to understand, we don't don't live under those circumstances, and, and too often we make judgments when we're not in that kind of situation. We wonder why people do what they do, but it's very difficult, even for me, to understand Having visited many of these places, why people do what they do, because I don't live it. Is your focus, do you feel, for the next, um, for the
1: immediate future, going to be Myanmar and uh, telling the unheard stories?
2: Well, well, it certainly is. Um, I mean, what I'm hoping. I mean, I feel very fortunate that I've been able. Um, to have the career, as it were, that I've had. And so I do have a charity called Picture People, which that's what we do. We go to frontline states such as Myanmar and the Philippines, and we uh, try and give the skills and impart our knowledge on how they can tell their own stories rather than us uh, tell their stories. So I'm very much hoping, and that's why I'm very involved at the moment, to see what we can do to help them uh be able to distribute and and tell their stories give them a voice at this difficult moment
1: and that might be something that we when you when you have a spare moment that we pick up with you again nick in terms of obviously a lot of the medical professionals that we engage with are on those front lines um in terms of working with ngos or or individually enabling them and giving them some of the skills to amplify the stories that they hear and see actually would be really useful because there is a skill and there is a knack and there is a way of doing it which is more fe- which creates effectiveness. So I think that would be a really fascinating topic to pick up with you.
2: You're I, I that- want to say something, <laughs> Robert, before we end, because it's really, really strong, because people talk about the effectiveness of aid and humanitarian responses. And I'm now talking to you in the medical profession. I've been to war zones where I've, you've asked me, oh, you know, what do I do? Don't I put the camera down? I've, I've had nurses or doctors shout at me saying, give us a hand and I've put the camera down and, and given them a hand and, and unfortunately, I don't know why, but I was asked even to assist in operations, medical operations, but that leads on to exactly something I think that is very important for, for all of you often i'm told by people in the medical profession that what they do isn't particularly effective on the scale of being in a certain location, but from on the ground listening to people in particularly in conflict zones. it's not the fact that you're practicing medicine it's the fact that you're there that you've come to witness you've come in a form of solidarity to be with them. So forget about even recording, forget about uploading. Your presence makes a huge difference to people who remain behind, who are unable to leave their homes or simply don't want to leave their homes. The fact that you are there, that you have risked your lives, that you have decided to give up the comforts of your home to be with them is immeasurable.
1: I think those are really strong words for, for the people in our audience because I know they would have felt absolute isolation in some of the um circumstances they found themselves in. So those words from yourself, Nick, will be amazingly reassuring and and, and positive for them. I've got one last question and it goes <laughs> and it goes back to your art. When you were at art school, your 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 art was based on geometry and, and mathematics. Now Given your life and given your career and the experiences you have, does the art that you do now is it remained unchanged or is it being very much altered
2: by your experiences? I think it's altered by every experience. I, I, as I said, I, I learn every day and I try and improve my photography every day. I look at other images that other people have produced. Uh, I get inspiration from many, many sources, not just visual sources, but I think my biggest inspiration is from the people I visit.
1: Nick, I'm gonna hand over to to Will in a second, but it's taken me 25 years to track you down for this (laughs) interview. Hopefully it won't take us quite so long to the next, because we're both being our dotage then. But uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and and an insightful, um hour to spend with you um so thank you from from myself for for agreeing to to meet with us today will i'd like to hand over to you
0: yeah i certainly echo echo those sentiments uh nick your insights have been really really um really useful thank you uh, how can people uh in our audience who want to know more about you perhaps they want to get a copy of second life sorry another life themselves how can they do that
2: Oh, I hate promoting my own book. <laughs> you put me on the spot. I thought you were going to do the, what they call the spiel. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I just am very grateful that you've invited me onto your WEM podcast. Um, if you really want to get a book, and I always say, oh, you can buy them secondhand very cheaply, but you will help me by not buying them secondhand. Um, you can go on Amazon, but as you're in the UK, I would say, Hive.co.uk is an independent website that I think directs you to independent bookstores. So um, you can do that. Anyone's free to contact me through email, Instagram, or whatever. If I, nice. I will always get to answer at some point. And uh, because I also took pictures on the front line at the hospital that was at the center of the uh, pandemic in France, I do want to take off, you know, I want to doff my cap to... Not just the doctors, but in particular the the nurses and the we call them aide soignants I guess, um, auxiliary nurses, yeah, healthcare workers, or healthcare, or healthcare, 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 workers healthcare assistants, who yeah. you know, uh, touching the patients and cleaning them. And I I just want to say that there is no nobler profession other than teaching. The two <laughs> the two of you I think go together as being the real heroes and the ones that we should uh, remember uh, that without you there our lives would be a lot worse
0: It's very humbling to, to hear that nick and it's also been a great privilege to speak to someone like you who is really guided by their values and that's been particularly inspiring for me as to someone that is really driven by a deeper sense of purpose and you know Nick, unlike many photographers in the world, and there's nothing inherently wrong with self-promotion, I think (laughs) you're doing it for the right reasons. And um, I really do admire that. Thank you. Hopefully one day I'll meet you in person, both of you. <laughs> I think we, we definitely will. And just Over to a beer. do a bit of
1: self-promotion <laughs> for you, Nick, your amazing prints are available on your on your website. And I know by selling prints, it helps you to, to further your work. So, yeah, I hope we do meet for a beer and certainly we get to meet in person. I'm, and I'm sure that's going to be the case very soon.
0: We'll put plenty of links to where you can get Nick's book and we'll put some links to some of his, his images as well in the show notes. You can have a look at those. But on behalf of myself and Mark and the team at WEM, Nick Danziger, thanks for coming on WEMcast. We'll catch up again very soon.